You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is uh, David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust your weekend has been fine and um, all looking good for the week ahead. Uh, Both of those are correct, at least as far as Sunday goes, Giles. Rain here on Saturday, so I thought back in New South Wales, raining again. I trust all our listeners are making the most of the weather and... uh, I'll tell you what, you've uh, got to be working Sundays to try and stay on top of what's going on in the energy world, don't you? Well, it does. Um, It's all happening very, very quickly. There's a few things to talk about um, in this episode, notably the uh, Energy Networks Association conference from last week. We've just had a very interesting um, election result in South Australia, um, approvals for big batteries and a bunch of other things um, happening in Europe as well. But first of all, we're going to listen to this interview. We were very fortunate to catch up last week with Julie Shuttleworth, who is the CEO of Fortescue Future Industries, which is the new green energy arm of Fortescue Metals, and is charged with delivering Andrew Forrest's very ambitious target of 15 million tonnes of green hydrogen a year by 2030. Anyway, we caught up with Julie Shuttleworth um, earlier this week, and here's what she had to say. Julie Shuttleworth, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Giles. Look, it's just extraordinary the run of announcements that are put out by Fortescue Future Industries. It's hard for us in the media to catch up, and all we have to do is write about them. I mean, it must be an incredible challenge to actually put these deals together. Um, How do you keep up? Well, it definitely takes an amazing amount of energy to drive FFI forward, but the planet's cooking. We need to take urgent action, and we really want to lead by example in FFI, decarbonise heavy industry and show the world that heavy industry can decarbonise. So we've got lots to do. Yeah, the target set by Andrew Forrest, um, 15 million tonnes of green hydrogen by 2030. It's an extraordinarily big target. I mean, it probably involves um, renewable energy capacity of 200 gigawatts by most calculations. Is that really just a stretch goal or is that actually, as Andrew Forrest sat down and said, Julie, you're the boss of Fortescue Future Industries. That's our new green energy machine. That's what you need to deliver by 2030. When we set this goal about 12 months ago now, it certainly was a stretch target. But our chairman had just visited Japan, South Korea, Europe and North America and seen there was such a, such a demand for green hydrogen, but the world wasn't producing it. So we set ourselves that goal. At the time, it was very stretch. But 12 months have since passed. There's a huge amount of demand for green hydrogen and we've advanced our projects here in Australia and around the world. We've advanced our technology portfolio. We've we've advanced manufacturing. We've got some excellent team members in the team in FFI here. And now this is looking very achievable. It's absolutely possible. Still needs a massive effort, of course. No one's done this at this scale before. 
Yeah. What's going to be the keys to this? I mean, you talk about demand. Is it going to be a mixture of demand? Is it also going to be about the cost? Because uh, demand's only going to be kept as, as you know, as, as long as the costs remain high. What's um, what's informing you on, on on costs of green hydrogen, for instance? Um, and you're you're playing in, in in a variety of different technologies, which is really quite interesting. Well, what's key here is that we cannot rely on several com- countries around the world to supply the world with fossil fuels. We cannot be energy dependent and have our energy security on those regions. So here in Australia, we've got plenty of wind and solar resources and around the world, we need to develop those to make renewable electricity, green hydrogen, green ammonia to decarbonise. What's driving this? What's going to make it successful? We need scale. We need to keep improving technology. We need manufacturing to plug the supply chain gap. And of course, we need to get projects started so that we learn, put the improvements, the cost improvements, the technology improvements into the next projects and get the firewheel turning of these green hydrogen projects. So we need to get cracking. Yeah. Hi, uh, Julie. Um, I I think Fortescue has said that um, in their latest results presentation that they're planning to put about uh, 400 to 600 US million a year of investment into uh, FFIs. Is, is that correct? Um, our market guidance for this year is 400 to 600 million US dollars that we're expecting to spend on FFI. That's to drive the studies, the engineering, the technology development, effectively FFI's operating costs to advance FFI. Um, we'll still have about 650 million on FFI's balance sheet to take into future years and thereafter 10% of Fortescue's NPAT will go into FFI. And, and uh, can I just, I mean, as Giles said, there's been a lot of projects announced and you're about to start on an electrolyzer manufacturing uh, facility at Gladstone. Uh, but I think about half the world's electrolyzers are going to be made in, in China. I'll come back to that, but could you just talk about what your priorities are for the next uh, uh, 12 to 18 months, say? We've got two key priorities at FFI. The first is to support the decarbonisation of Fortescue so that we become carbon neutral by 2030 um, with our scope one and two emissions. And the second objective is to advance our projects globally to produce 15 million tonnes of green hydrogen globally. So to advance those, we need to keep developing uh, technology. We need to develop our manufacturing capability. And of course, our development of the green fleet is absolutely key. Uh, but, I mean, uh, like 15 million tonnes, but you haven't actually, I mean, there's a lot of um, um, inquiries and, and, you know, heads of agreements and stuff. But, I mean, of all the projects that you're looking at in the UK and Germany, in, in, uh, in Gibson Island for ammonia, uh, do you see any one of those as standing out as more likely to progress uh, than any other? We're advancing multiple projects in parallel. Gibson Island one is an early one. Uh, obviously, there's infrastructure already there which can be used and we'll then be making green hydrogen to feed into that existing ammonia facility. But when we talk about 15 million tonnes, we've got a portfolio of projects in Australia and around the world. We haven't announced all of them, of course. They're ones that our teams are working on. They're in various stages of study and resource acquisition and uh, advancing to make that 15 million tonnes per year by 2030. I'll just ask one more question, hand back to Giles. So you're you're going to be making uh, electrolyzers in Gladstone. What um, 
comparative advantage do you expect to have in developing electrolyzer technology? I, I mean, I think it's, is it an alkaline electrolyzer, which I think is about 80% of what's been made in the world at the moment. And, you know, China's, like, as I said, according to BNEF, about half the world's production this year. Traditionally, Australia's found it hard to compete with someone like China in manufacturing that sort of equipment cost competitively. Could just talk a little bit about uh, how you're thinking about that. Yeah, we're establishing the Global Green Energy Manufacturing Centre in Gladstone in Queensland. It will be a world-leading hub for manufacturing electrolysers. We're going to start with a two gigawatt per year capacity, and that's the first phase. We'll expand it beyond there. We're doing a JV with Plug Power. They're bringing the technology for the, uh, the electrochemical electrolyzer technology. It will be a PEM technology and... Fortitude is bringing the advanced manufacturing capabilities um, and we have started construction of that facility already and we expect to be making electrolyzers by next year. So of course our FFI projects alone will be a strong consumer of those electrolyzers. We just can't wait for the rest of the world to make electrolyzers. We need to keep advancing these projects and clearly manufacturing of the key components is a, a big important part of that. Mm -hmm. That um, uh, manufacturing facility in Gladstone is also looking at other technologies as well. Um, and you've mentioned about solar, you've mentioned um, wind turbines, you've mentioned cabling, um, and um, I think even battery storage. What will be the drivers for those things? And, and, and when do you might consider expanding that particular, those particular production lines to those different um, technologies? Yeah, our team's already speaking with various technology providers and looking at our own in-house R&D on some of those items also. But uh, we expect that there'll be some more news to the market on those over the coming 12 months. It's very important that we do expand that facility, but not just that facility. I mean, we've got opportunities here to create manufacturing across other states in Australia and also in select global locations as well. It's absolutely going to be important to be able to feed into our projects and the world's demand for green hydrogen. Mm. You've also made an investment in Stark um, Energy, I think it is. It's another hydrogen um, electrolyzer, another electrolyzer technology. Are you sort of sort of balancing? You sort of looking at different sort of options. I mean, it's it, it's a new industry. I guess it's a bit like batteries. The chemistries change, and possibly the modes of manufacturing change. The natural design of the electrolyzers may may change. Um, is that kind of what interests you with these different investments? Because you've also invested in the Dutch Hyatt company, which has a range of different technology options. It's very important that we look at technology across the entire green hydrogen value chain. And so that growing portfolio of technology assets and R&D that we're doing does support into every stage that's, that we're going to need to, to produce green hydrogen. It's spark hydrogen um, and spark hydrogen is a very exciting direct solar to hydrogen technology that um, has been originated by the University of Adelaide that allows hydrogen to be generated directly from sunlight and water without needing to use solar and power resources, for example, to make the renewable power and without needing to use electrolysis. And so you can get rid of a whole lot of capital investment and go directly from sunlight to, and water to make green hydrogen using a photocatalytic converter. Mm. So this is obviously in early stages of technology development, showing promising at, uh, results at this early stage, but it's very important that we invest in parallel streams to, of technology development to keep all options open. Um, and of course, as this technology continues to uh, advance, then we expect the capital costs of making green hydrogen to plummet significantly. Mm. 
So are you just looking at the technology? And I'm just trying to understand because you've also announced, um, or Fortescue, as part of the broader group, has announced some, you know, several major um, generation sort of initiatives. And there's the 5.4 gigawatt wind and solar in the Pilbara with battery storage. Um, there's another two gigawatt hour battery and um, associated wind and solar in Queensland. And there's various other things. There's the um, there's the Sun Cable thing, which is directly through Andrew Forrest's or squad, um, uh, squadron energy. Um, who has responsibility for all these generation power projects and how should people think about it? Because some of it seems to be um, Andrew Forrest's private interest through squadrons. Some of it seems to be Fortescue Metals. Um, maybe some of it's coming through Fortescue Future Industries. How, how, how should we think about that? Well, um, Andrew Forrest, through his private investment arm and through Squadron Energy, are investing in renewable energy projects, which are the ones, like you mentioned, Sun Cable and one in Queensland. Fortescue Future Industries is developing our own green hydrogen and renewable energy projects. For example, the one in the Pilbara, the Pilbara Renewable Energy Hub. That is to uh, develop wind and solar power that will feed into decarbonising our Fortescue operations to reduce our scope one and two emissions and achieve our 2030 decarbonisation objectives. So we'll be um, putting wind and solar on the, uh, the land and mm. having a transmission line through to um, our mine sites that are all interlinked together, making renewable electricity to decarbonise the stationary power, but also that renewable electricity to make green hydrogen and green ammonia to decarbonise our mobile fleet. And we've been doing a lot of work on our mobile fleet to decarbonise uh, trucks, trains, uh, drill rigs, excavators, and even mm. our ships. I, I, I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm going to be rude. Sorry, Dave, I'm going to have one more question. Love to get back to those mobility things um, later. Mm. Just on that 5.4 gigawatt um, Pilbara um, wind and solar facility. Um, so how close are we to, to, to that? I mean, when do you expect to sort of, you know, um, be shovel ready as it, as it is? When, when might that be constructed? We have to work with all our neighbours and the stakeholders to investigate developing that project. We've submitted the referral of the proposal under the Environmental Protection Act, and we're working through those those phases of the, of the project at this point. So it's still going to be some time because you have to go through the various approvals uh, processes, the stakeholder engagement, which is very important. Uh, but this will definitely feed into our decarbonisation. So we expect to see much more progress being announced over the next um, one to two years. And just uh, finishing off on that, Julie, I, I, I have never looked at what Fortescue's actual scope and one and two emissions actually are in total. What are they? About two, between two to 2.2 million tonnes per year of carbon dioxide uh, through our scope one and two emissions um, reported last year. So, I mean, that's if we don't do anything, um, we'll be using about a billion litres of diesel per year by 2030. Last year, we used about 700 to 750 million litres of diesel. So that's our mission to abate that diesel consumption. But I mean, relative to the scale of what we have, 15 million tonnes of uh, uh, hydrogen, and remembering that global demand for hydrogen, I think, is about 70 million directly and over 100 million if you include ammonia and stuff. Mm. I mean, Fortescue's own emissions are actually uh, very small, are they not? That's right. Our own emissions are very small in the scheme of everything. But what's really important here is that we can create the demand for the renewable electricity, the green hydrogen, green ammonia, and we will supply it. So we need to get this global chain, green hydrogen chain moving. Um, and that's really important because we can build up the credibility and show that it works in our own operations. 
a large part of our 15 million tonnes, most of it will definitely go um, within to decarbonise other Australian industry and to be exported globally to the markets that need it. We've already got some MOUs in place with various companies like JCB in the UK and Covestro in Germany that have already expressed interest in this offtake and, and many others obviously are interested also. And I guess you must have done quite a lot of studies uh, about the cost of transporting hydrogen, which seems, you know, like one of the things I've observed myself is that renewable energy is reasonably democratic. If you look at various studies, most countries in the world could produce their own green hydrogen at, uh, uh, you know, some cost or other to produce it in Australia and then sell it to, say, Europe. You've got to overcome the transport disadvantage with greater efficiency as a renewable energy or lower cost, I mean. How, how do you think about the competitiveness of Australian green hydrogen on a world scale? This is really... As a, deliv as a delivered cost, you know. Yeah, this is a, a really critical point, the cost of uh, transporting green hydrogen, green ammonia, and obviously the costs will come down as technology advances. So there's a few ways to look at this. First, decarbonise whatever you can locally to where you produce the green hydrogen and green ammonia i.e. let's decarbonise Australia. Then let's, let's look at those markets that are close to Australia, particularly Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Southeast Asia. And of course, the opportunity to um, support Europe, especially through its current energy crisis now, is a huge opportunity for Australia. And we need to work together to focus on getting those costs of transport down. Um, but definitely there's pathways. We've already seen a hydrogen shipment to Japan, so we know the technology works. It's now a matter of scaling that up getting it done at much higher scale and that will drive the cost down. And, um, and also just might back. just add to that, you know, this is a reason why um, FFI has a global portfolio of projects. We've got projects in Africa, Europe, North America, South America. We've got them globally so they can feed into the local markets and really take advantage of reduced transport costs. Yes, but I think it's an enormous effort to develop a lot of uh, projects myself. You know, if I was a financial analyst, which I used to be, it would be cautious to hear about such large-scale ambition, notwithstanding uh, uh, the history of Fortescue generally, which I'm f reasonably familiar yeah. with. Just coming back to the factory in Gladstone, I think you mentioned a capacity of two gigawatts, but I, I think that's about the global uh, production this year of electrolyzers will be about... Of that, of that size, mm. much bigger than last year. So, I mean, that's an enormous factory, uh, you know, in terms of uh, capacity relative to current global demand. How much is that going to, how much do you expect to invest in just that uh, facility before it gets up to, you know? Our investment for that facility is 83 million US dollars, and that will get us to that capacity. We've been very efficient with this design. Uh, it's advanced manufacturing capabilities and that's why we can do this in Australia and um, bring in the most advanced manufacturing capabilities and the plug power technology. And just looking at the shipping, I noticed uh, plug, plug power is a technology but I mean their cash burn frankly is, is also pretty high I think in the order of four or five hundred million a year and they may not have a whole Fortescue behind it, but that's a separate topic, I guess. And, and how are you thinking about this partner, partners? We've talked about end-demand partners or heads of mm. agreement, but what about shipping and all and balance of plant and all of that sort of thing? I mean, uh, have you got, like if I look at some of the other guys around the place doing it, there's some quite advanced consortia uh, uh, for even individual projects, like uh, I don't know what Stanwell's doing, also in the Gladstone area. 
do you have any thoughts about that at all generally? I'd just like to say that this is uh, an area where we all need to actually work together to drive the green hydrogen economy forward. There'll be plenty of opportunities for partnerships where it makes sense to do that. Uh, FFI will partner with technology providers, with OEMs to help achieve the objectives. And in some cases, like we've identified, it makes sense to do them ourselves because uh, the world hasn't uh, advanced that far yet. Um, so it's going to be a combination. I'm just wondering if I can get back into the mobility um, questions. I mean, that billion dollars, a billion litres a year um, consumption by 2030, if nothing else was changed, just an extraordinary number. Um, obviously, hydrogen may play a role, but it might, might the answer even for heavy machinery still be a mix of hydrogen or electric or one or the other? And do you have like an open book on that? I mean, is it um, could it be um, either? Yes, it definitely could be either. So how we see this is that we're developing both uh, battery electric haul trucks and hydrogen powered haul trucks. We've ordered some battery electric locomotives. We're developing our own ammonia powered locomotive and also an infinity train. So there's three pathways for trains. And I'll talk more about that infinity train soon. For ships, where, yeah, for ships where we've got ourselves a 75 metre ship and we're converting that to run on ammonia. So when it comes back to the trucks, yes, we're trialling both. We've been working with Williams Advanced Engineering now for over 12 months on developing the battery systems for an electric haul truck. And of course, last year, in just 130 days, our in-house team of scientists and engineers and tradespeople developed a hydrogen-powered truck, bringing in components from all around the world and um, in record time made a hydrogen-powered truck. So what we're doing is testing both in parallel together on our mine sites, and that will be done in the next 12 to 18 months. And what we expect is there'll be a mixture of battery electric and hydrogen for our trucks, depending on the haul distances, the profiles of the hauls and the situation. So we'll be having renewable electricity going straight into stationary power and also to power up potentially haul trucks. We'll be using that renewable electricity through electrolysis of water to make green hydrogen for potentially haul trucks, dual rigs, excavators, and also then to make ammonia to run our ships, potentially our trains and other bits of equipment. But really what's exciting is the infinity train concept where we wouldn't need to use ammonia at all. But um, while we're developing the ammonia train is that there's so many other train networks in the world where that's going to be very useful. Mm. So just explain this infinity train then. Um, my understanding it's essentially sort of, um, is it electric, is it battery, is it regenerative, is, is it something along those lines? So... It's a regenerating battery electric train it's going to use gravitational mm -hmm. energy um, when it's fully loaded. These trains are long, they're heavy, they're fully loaded. They go downhill on the way from the mine sites to the port, headland port to offload. During that time, that gravitational energy will re fully recharge the battery electric systems and then it will be able to return to the mine site unloaded back to fill up, fill up its cargo um, without any recharging. And so our... Um, working together with Williams and the, the smart scientists and engineers they have there and their battery systems, management systems and their advanced electrical um, systems on mobile equipment, combining all that together will enable us to develop this train. So it's in development right now. So infinity is a very big word. I mean, mm. infinity is like a lot. But what you're suggesting then is that a much electricity will be um, sort of loaded up or charged mm -hmm. up when you're going down with a full load as you will need taking it back again. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this will avoid any recharging infrastructure, recharging systems, which obviously takes time 
um, but then you know you need wind and solar resources to be able to recharge it. So what we're aiming to do is to make the, the battery electric systems on that train sufficient enough to create its own electricity through the down, downhill fully loaded haul so that it can go back again. And of course, this is not just a matter of reducing carbon emissions. This will lower operating costs, create maintenance efficiencies, productivity opportunities. It's, there's a whole lot of positives that will come out of this project. And, and, and just got another question about that. So what size battery are we talking about? I, I guess it depends on the length of the train and, and how far is this technology away? Uh, we're developing it now with Williams and obviously we've, we've only acquired Williams in the last um, couple of months. So we're, we're working on that now. I'll have more details to announce on that when uh, we've got more info. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> I just um, uh, lots of different questions, but it's such a big uh, area that you're covering. In terms of ammonia versus hydrogen, ammonia is, um, you know, quite a toxic kind of material. But let's put that to one side. It's it's obviously a lot cheaper to transport. Uh, where do you see, you know, they're trying to general, develop uh, generation for ammonia, but it's not that easy from what I've seen. Or it's got limit. Well, anyway. Is it shipping that you see ammonia a primary market? Definitely. Ammonia in shipping is a key market. So right now, marine fuel is the dirtiest fuel on the planet. There's an opportunity to convert all our ships to run on green ammonia, and that will be zero carbon emissions. And the bunkering locations around the world um, can be replaced from marine fuel to green ammonia, and the ship's globally can be converted to run on green ammonia. And right now we've, we're converting a ship that we've purchased to run on ammonia and we'll have that um, running on ammonia by later this year and into next year to prove that it can be done. And then this is just a great opportunity for the world shipping industry. So green ammonia into shipping is a huge use of that. Obviously green ammonia into trains is also an opportunity where that infinity train concept won't work. And we've already tested ammonia in a train at 80% blend. So that's, uh, we're advancing that work really well. Um, and then, of course, green ammonia into fertilisers and the other uses of ammonia that we see these days. Yeah, and just on the, uh, in the trains, which is interesting, 80% blend is, is, I hadn't heard that at all. Uh, and w what about the NOx emissions and stuff like that? Is, is that all taken care of easily enough? Well, what happens um, to avoid the NOx emissions is the, the NOx that would otherwise be emitted can get combined again with the ammonia and um, makes uh, nitrogen and water and therefore no NOx emissions. So you can have a special catalyst like a scrubber and use a bit of that ammonia combined with that NOx to make the inert nitrogen and water. So that's how you get away from that NOx emission. And of course... That's what, we'll be, that's what we'll be doing. And, you know, with the acquisition of Williams, just uh, in the corporate side of things again, what would the total uh, headcount be now and how would that compare in percentage-wise growth with a year ago and where would you expect it to be in another year? Yeah, uh, we've got about 850 full-time people in FFI across 24 countries right now. That's developing, uh, um, advancing our studies, our technology, the offtake and marketing side of things and everything that we're doing across FFI. Uh, the Williams team um, totals about 400 people now and about 50 to 80 of those are working on FFI-related, Fortescue-related projects. Uh, so that's where we're sitting right now. Obviously, as our projects advance, our technology advances, our regional hubs develop out, we'll be growing the team 
Um, the exact numbers so I won't say here, but uh, we'll be growing as, re as required to meet the, the workload that's, that are on. But it's really important to know that we're being very frugal with the money allocation that we get from Fortescue. Every project goes through a stage gating, assessing all the risks, looking at the resources that's needed for it so that we're being very frugal with the money and making sure that each dollar we spend is creating huge amounts of value for the company. I, I'm sure that's right uh, in general, but I mean, since other than the factory, it's all sort of development more or less at the moment. It's really hard to tell how the uh, capex spend will go once things start to progress further. But anyway, yeah, that's all in the future. And of course, we'll announce those as the projects get approved by the Fortescue board. But you know, it takes a bit of time to work through the various projects, the technologies, and get them optimised before you can actually make a big announcement to the marketplace about the specific projects. FFI has been here since August 2020, 18 months, and we've progressed a long way in that time. And as of course, as we've got things to announce to the market, then of course we will. Hmm. Julie, we're just about wrapped up for time. I just wanted a quick, a couple, quick couple of questions. One about um, your hiring of Guy Debell from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Um, what's the attraction of having a, um, a Reserve Banker and as Chief Financial Officer? Really exciting to have Guy joining our team in June. He brings huge economic credibility. He's very passionate about driving climate change and rolling up his sleeves and getting stuck into it. He'll be able to help drive the most optimal financial solutions for these huge projects development projects, our vast technology portfolio. It's going to be very exciting to have Guy join the team. Did you headhunt him or did he come to you saying, I don't want to be an investment uh, um, a reserve banker anymore? Oh, he wasn't looking for a change, of course, and so um, we uh, reached out to him. And um, I'm just wondering, um, Fortescue and Andrew Forrest have been very outspoken about um, the future of energy in Australia and around the world. And he's been very critical of the people who are sort of, he says, sort of kidding themselves about sort of still thinking that the sort of fossil fuels has some sort of role both in the local greed and as sort of some sort of source of hydrogen. What's been the reaction sort of corporate wise and from government? Are you seeing an evolution now um, from the likes of Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon Brooks, very outspoken, rich people, very influential, able to move money? to make things happen is that are you starting to see a change now or are you still butting up against a lot of resistance we still need to make sure that governments and the community are well educated in fossil fuel hydrogen versus green hydrogen which has got zero emissions and take which takes into account all the carbon emissions the global green and the greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere through for example fugitive emissions of methane through to emissions of carbon dioxide when you're making hydrogen from fossil fuels. So what's really important is a global accreditation system for hydrogen so that the consumer knows how much carbon dioxide or methane emissions go into producing that hydrogen. That's absolutely really key. And I don't think we're there yet. There's still a lot of um, false information getting spread around the place and a, a lot of confusion. And the other thing that we do need, though, is clear and efficient approvals pathways to get these green hydrogen and renewable energy projects going quickly so that we actually can be in control of our own energy future here in Australia and create those huge amounts of jobs and opportunities for people all across Australia in this industry. Look, Julie, thank you very much for the time. I do feel like we've only just scratched the surface yes, we because have. we are doing so much and doing things. I feel like we could talk for another hour or so just sort of delving into some of those things. Um, so perhaps we can get you back on the line and, and perhaps talk in detail about some sort of um, some of your future announcements. But uh, look, we do thank you for um, spending your time with us today and, um, and uh, really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for that. And we do have something exciting happening this year on our mine site at Christmas Creek. We have a 
green hydrogen refuelling station being uh, constructed now that will fuel up our green hydrogen coaches and other heavy mobile equipment. So it'd be great to talk about that once we've got that commission later in the year. Okay, well, we look forward to sort of more developments on the infinity train mm. and the various hydrogen technologies and the manufacturing facilities, not to mention all the massive wind and solar projects and goodness gracious. Okay, well, look, thank you very much, Julie, for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Giles and David. That was Julie Shuttleworth, the CEO of Fortescue Future Industries. Well, um, David, quite a lot out of that. I mean, and we probably could have kept on talking, as we said, for another half an hour, just sort of the, 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 the simple scale and range of the projects that they've been talking about. I found it pretty interesting to hear Julie say at the start of the uh, interview that, um, yes, the 15 million tonnes was very much a stretch target or a very stretched target when it was announced a year ago. But um, 12 months later, they think... Um, it is very achievable. Um, a lot of work to do, obviously, but we're starting to see a few real things rolled out, such as the electrolyzer factory. A lot of MOUs still need to be translated into actual deals and investments. But um, what make you of this? Well, Giles, I think it's too early to say, to be honest. I mean, uh, as in thinking as an analyst, the first thing that you asked about is what's, uh, what goes into Squadron Energy or, or Andrew Forrest's private investments as opposed to what goes into Fortescue Future Industries. And, you know, how do Fortescue shareholders, such as an iron ore company, feel about green hydrogen uh, consuming a, a share of their profits, quite a big share with 800 in growing employees, and, you know, then you have to think about where's all the actual uh, terawatt hours of energy going to come from that are going to fuel all these magnificent projects, uh, plus all the actual capital expenditure to get them going. So um, it's, it's a very ambitious, very big budget, um, but uh, probably too big for me, to be honest, at the moment, Giles. I would rather just look at that... Uh, 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 sun cable project to which is one project you know 20 30 40 billion whatever it is <laughs> just a small thing and and try and uh, see if we can't follow that through rather it's just too hard at the moment for me ffi yes well it is yeah and, and but um look a lot of you know ostensibly very interesting projects very interesting technologies um new electrolyzer sort of chemistries um the infinity train for me is quite a fascinating project um possibly not wide widespread application um ammonia in ships um is an interesting um opportunity so we shall wait and see and no doubt they'll keep on the uh the rollout of the announcements but interesting that they've got someone like guy de bell on board Oh, look, there's no, there's no doubt there's a lot of quality people uh, working very, very hard on it. It's just uh, too prototypey at the moment to make any useful comment is what I would say. But for me, um, someone else may understand it far, far better than me. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having enough trouble trying to keep up with the 15 billion of transmission spending that is outlined in the ISP out to, uh, you know, 2030 or a bit beyond and how much of that is actually going to get implemented and whether it will enough will be implemented to enable New South Wales to keep the lights on when Araring closes in three years' time, you know, and how much new renewable energy we can build. I mean, there's only so many jobs one person, uh, uh, even a super person like you, Giles, can actually do. Well, um, I'm not doing much at all apart from making some observations. Um, on that transmission, we did have the Energy Networks Conference um, last week. Some keynote speeches from Chris Bowen and Angus Taylor. 
Um, what did you make of them? Chris Bowen was talking about sort of reframing the regulatory process known as RIC-T. Um, and I think that'll be a, um, a lot of people would agree that that needs refreshing. Um, it certainly needs updating to, for, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Angus Taylor was um, scaremongering as usual, talking about sort of gold plating of grids, potential gold plating of grids, etc. Um, apart from the parts of, of the grid, of course, that need to connect Snowy Hydro or Snowy 2.0. David, any observations there? Well, my, I suppose the negative observation is I, I really wish Angus Taylor could say something useful and positive. I, I do understand, and it is appropriate to consider the cost of transmission. That's, that's a, a correct observation, really. I mean, and if I want to pay the Liberal government its due, it has focused and will be focusing as an election point its claim that electricity prices have fallen by 8%. Uh, but I mean, the, the, and, and it has contributed to that fall uh, to an extent for some customers by limiting the retail maximum tariffs that can be charged. But on the other hand, electricity prices in New South Wales and Queensland uh, have gone shooting up again, uh, uh, you know, and the statistics are always lagging. And it would be very hard to point to really what Taylor's actually achieved in, in terms of progress. But the far, far bigger point is it's just nothing looking forward. You know, it's nothing. I mean, you can talk about falling electricity prices, but we've got oil prices going through the roof and there's no policy to reduce Australia's dependence on oil. And, and I think Chris Bowen has actually listened and done the reading and and is more or less in tune with what AEMO and uh, two-thirds of the Energy Security Board uh, wants to happen. <laughs> uh, and and uh, generally, it's very clear to me, very clear that we do need to build some new transmission. The exact amount is, is what the ISP is there to measure and get debated. Uh, but but we need it. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Chris Bowen pretty much has the right of it. As far as the RIT, the regulatory investment test, uh, which is a very tough test to pass and the reason that very little transmission has been built in New South Wales, and that is because that test requires that consumers at both ends of the transmission line be better off. So it's no good saying electricity prices are high in New South Wales and low in Victoria and a transmission line will equalise it out. You have to show that in totality, people will be better off. And that doesn't really allow for externalities like carbon uh, issues and, and, and uh, other general social benefits like uh, reliability and so on, particularly. So we need, uh, uh, and not only that, the urgency of uh, rebuilding the transmission network just means that we simply can't afford to take three or four years going through regulatory tests before we start building everything. Mm. No, I, I thoroughly agree with that. And um, it does actually sort of result in perverse outcomes. For instance, in a story we wrote about a couple of months ago in Broken Hill, where Transgrid and others are very interested in building um, a new sort of uh, um, storage, but have sort of find themselves almost obliged to rebuild or build new diesel power stations um, or diesel generators, because that's what the writ allows. And it doesn't consider some of those broader externalities, as you mentioned, including in most particularly the environment. Um, you mentioned Chris Bowen and him taking seriously after the result in South Australia over the weekend. It would seem that Labor's chances in the federal sphere are greatly enhanced. Um, I don't think anyone outside of South Australia was expecting such a comprehensive landslide win for Labor. Um, six months ago, I don't think even the people in South Australia were expecting that. But um, things change. Um, 
Interesting, though. Um, so Liberals gone in one term. Dan Van Holst Pelican, the energy minister who um, graced these airwaves a couple of times. And, yeah, uh, and, and Giles, you know job. what? Uh, I was in South Australia a week ago and politics uh, wasn't mentioned on one single... I never heard a word of politics. I think that's what made it a great holiday in some ways. But uh, uh, the second thing is uh, I have no, had no complaints about the Marshall government as far as energy policy goes. I think Dan... Uh, Van Holst Pelican, who ended up losing his seat, unfortunately, mm. for him, uh, um, actually did a fine job as energy minister. So um, I, I trust that the Labor government uh, will do and carry on the good work as he carried on their good work. And, you know, Project Energy Connect is 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 committed now. So that, that and uh, the hydrogen strategy in South Australia, well, you know, despite South Australia's hopes, I, I, I'm not sure that any most studies actually identify South Australia as the ideal place to to build green hydrogen. It could be done there, but it's just a question of the transport, closeness to markets, to adequacy of the total resource, and all of those sort of things make me personally think that uh, either the coast of uh, northwest shelf of West Australia. And even more likely, provided you can solve the water issues, the area up around Stanwell in Queensland, that's uh, not Stanwell, um, uh, Gladstone, uh, is, is, uh, uh, would be my front runners and just possibly Tasmania uh, because it's got the firming side of things for the electrolyzer or already made, the green firming through the hydro. Yeah, it's interesting. The Labor, so we'll, we're likely to see Tom Coutson turn us back as energy minister in a Labor government in South Australia. The big difference between their policy and the Liberals' policy seems to be on that green hydrogen strategy. They want to spend, they want to build a government funded one, a government owned one, 593 million, 250 megawatt electrolyzer at Wyala, plus a 200 megawatt um, hydrogen, um, power station which is an interesting one and they see that as important as a firming thing with the uh, with, with the renewables grid um i'm sure there'll be a bit of debate about that and whether it's actually wise to go through with a government funded one but look wait and see and um and, and see what happens i think both long term as far as transitioning the state grid to 100 renewables and beyond that um if they can through um hydrogen and hydrogen exports and other things um the policy is not that much different it just might just be in the actual application and the design of those strategies um, David, anything else to talk about? Um, I think we've had a, a big battery approval in New South Wales for AGL, um, Liddell. So, so um, the, comment on, the comment on that, Giles, I think that there's 500 uh, megawatts there while we're talking about power, plus the 700 megawatts from the New South Wales government, the Waratah battery, I think they're calling it, mm -hmm. plus stage one of the Origin one, which is, I think, 400 megawatts from memory. Uh, yes, so 460, yeah, something like that. So that's about 1.1 gigawatts of power. But we don't, you know, what we've, I've found with these announcements is they get watered down over time and turn into stages. And, you know, you talk about a four-hour battery, it turns into 40 minutes or something by the time they've actually done the budget. Uh, and and uh, so that, and then the other question to me is, you know, does it actually increase competition if AGL is running the Bayswater power station and it's also got a battery in there, uh, you know, uh, it just makes me think about how the, the extent of competition that you're going to have it. But certainly it's a lot of investment and, and a lot of batteries, and it needs to be because, you know, that closure of Araring is moving forward on us inexorably, and everyone is going to have to be going double time, double time. Uh, you know, New South Wales has got an acceleration strategy now, 
for the pumped hydro and stuff, which, uh, uh, but, you know, can you really get pumped hydro built by 2025? I'll be very surprised if any of it's uh, actually built, won't you? Well, absolutely. I mean, just thinking about South Australia, um, they had five or six, I think, uh, shortlisted pumped hydro projects for two different um, schemes. One, Angus Taylor's underwriting new generation investment, which was a complete flop, um, plus an arena um, agreed to sort of, uh, in a different way, um, put 40-something million dollars towards one project. Nothing's happened to any of them, and that's about three years um, further down the track. So, yeah, no, um, interesting. Yes, and, and we won't talk any more, Giles. But you know, uh, so uh, when you're in a hurry, uh, it's a battery over pumped uh, hydro. But I guess you don't holler for a marshal, do you? <laughs> well, not now that he's lost his. Um, no, that's a terrible joke. I'm not going to go there. I already have. Too late. Um, <laughs> yes, and um, but it is it is interesting though that um, the New South Wales infrastructure scheme does specifically support pumped hydro. So perhaps that's an acknowledgement of the support that they require to have such um, projects of scale required. Um, just a final thought, um, David, just on electric vehicles. A lot of people I'm talking to thinking about electric vehicles. People I was rather surprised. We're going to talk uh, about it. I'm talking about electric vehicles, but of course you can't actually get any in Australia at the moment. No, no. To, so we'll uh, just be politics. thinking. It's, we'll just be thinking, just, but but but, Giles, but, but go oh, ahead. Sorry. No, 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 you go. go. Ahead. No, no, you go, Giles. I insist. <laughs> well, I was actually just going to lead into something that you mentioned before we started talking on the podcast, which was about sort of vehicle to grid technologies in Germany and what what have you. At least they they have actually got a sizable share of the um, of the new new sales market is electric vehicles. It's getting up to about twenty percent in most places in Europe and eighty ninety percent in places like Norway. And vehicle to grid technology is becoming a real thing. Yes, and it's, so it's as usual. It's about getting the standards defined nice and early, and it's particularly the, reading some of the early literature on that. It's going to be about the uh, charging infrastructure, uh, you know, in at the house or wherever you charge your vehicle, because it's uh, you can't be expecting the vehicle to know what it's connected to all the time and to be working out, you know, what the grid's going to need from it. You're going to need this very smart uh, piece of technology. Not very smart, but uh, that's that's where the uh, box is going to be. As as we discussed uh, on our pe- uh, podcast only a few weeks ago, and as I'm sure we'll be talking about some more going forward. Absolutely, and that's a sort of a useful opportunity to remind people of our interview with uh, Tim Washington from Jet Charge um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, do also catch up with the interviews um, we've had over the last couple of weeks, including the last one with uh, Frank Calabria, the CEO of Origin Energy. Before that, Gordon Weimer from uh, Snowy Hydro, Lily D'Ambrosio, the Victorian Energy Minister, and Atlassian's Mike Cannon-Brooks. Um, fantastic lineup, and they will continue over the next couple of months. Um, David, what... Um, I should thank also our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Um, thank you everybody out there for listening and to thank you, David, and also to Julie Shuttleworth for joining us today from Fortescue Future Industries. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. 
Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.